Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 18. We've spent many, many weeks in John 17, and I don't know about you, but I profited greatly from it. And this morning we end up, uh, we will begin, not end up, we end up last week in John 17, but this morning we will begin chapter 18. And I want to read verses 1 through 9. We'll spend the next couple of weeks here on this these nine verses. Um, but I want to begin by laying out the foundation for us here in this chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the book Kidron, where was a garden into which He entered with His disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with His disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto him, unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. I am he. I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which He spake, of them which thou gavest Me, have I lost none. There is so much in those first nine verses. But first I want to give us a brief review this morning. In chapter 9, in chapter 1 that is, we were introduced to the eternal Son of God who was with God and who was God. We learn that as God, He had created all things. We learned that as God, He is eternal light. We learn that as God, He is eternal life. We learn that as God, He became a man. He is fully God and fully man, both at the same time in one undivided person. We learned that He was sent to reveal the Father, that He was sent to His own, and His own did not receive Him, that He was sent into His creation, and His creation did not know Him. And yet, despite that, He was sent to bring grace and truth to sinners. And that He was sent as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That was chapter 1. And we were introduced by John to the eternal Son of, of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second division of John's Gospel began in chapter 2 and continued to the end of chapter 12. In these chapters, we learn that our Lord entered into His earthly ministry. And during His earthly ministry, He preached to sinners, commanding them that they should repent and believe His gospel message. He, through His disciples, engaged in the baptizing of those who repented and believed His message. He organized a church and then taught them how to function. He preached the Word of God to those who did not want to hear it as well as to those who did hear it and who grew in grace and in the knowledge of God. He performed miracles to prove He was God and to prove that His Father was with Him approving of His ministry. That was Him entering into His earthly ministry. And at the close of 
chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, we have the third division in the Gospel of John. From the chapter 13 to chapter 17, our Lord continues His earthly ministry, but primarily in private with His disciples. At the beginning then, at the, of the end of His earthly ministry, before He went to Calvary's cross, He took His disciples aside from the public arena and privately instructed them. He instructed them concerning their calling to represent the true God. He instructed them concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit, which would be with them and in them, and which would teach them truth and reveal the things that they needed to know. He instructed them concerning the persecution that would be common of true Christianity that would fall upon them and upon all who would believe from their message. He instructed them, fourthly, concerning their responsibility to carry His gospel message to all the nations of the world. He closed this aspect of His earthly ministry with the promise that He would be with them until the end of time. And He prayed to His Father that those who had been given to Him might be protected and preserved and in the end might be brought into heaven with Him so that they could behold Him as He was. We are now entering the fourth and last division of John's Gospel. From the beginning of chapter 18 to the end of chapter 21, the Lord Jesus Christ enters into and accomplishes the final purpose of His coming. He has been sent by His Father to save His people from their sins. To do that, He must become their sin-bearer. Thus far, He has lived impeccably holy life. He has taught the Word of God. He has performed miracles. He has revealed the Father. Some have believed. But without this last aspect of His ministry, none will be saved. In order that He will save His people from their sins, He must become their sin-bearer. He must become the one who stands in their place under the justice of the Almighty. He must stand in their place under divine judgment. He who knew no sin must be sin for them in order that they might gain a righteousness where they can be accepted before the holy God in heaven. He must die so they might live. This is all before Him. Beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, and continuing to the end of chapter 21. In these chapters, our Lord will submit Himself freely, and willingly to His enemies, as we will see before we get out of, verse, of chapter 18. He will be falsely judged. He will be falsely condemned. And then He will be put to death at Calvary's cross. After His death, He will be buried. But that's not the end of the story. Because in these same chapters, we will see that He also rises from the grave after three days and three nights in that grave. And after rising, He meets with His existing church. He instructs them in areas where they are ignorant and opens the Scriptures to them so they more fully understand things. He comforts them and bestows upon them His peace and bestows upon them His joy during those days after the resurrection. He gives them final instructions concerning the magnitude of their responsibility to carry the gospel into the, all of the nations of the world to see to it that Jew and Gentile alike hear the gospel message. That is what takes place in the remaining chapters of the gospel of John. And so we begin with chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
He went forth with His disciples, speaking of the eleven, over the book Kidron, where was a garden into which He entered with His disciples. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? What specifically does John have in mind when he uses that phrase, these words? John does not go back to the beginning ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, picks up in chapter 13 where Jesus Christ has privately been instructing His disciples. There in chapter 13, we learn that He met with Martha and Mary and Lazarus after the resurrection of Lazarus. And He began at that meal to instruct them concerning the things regarding Himself. Back and forth, He would go from Bethany to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem back to Bethany and Bethany back to Jerusalem in those days during the Passover where He would celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And and in those days, from the beginning of chapter 13 until His capture and His submission to His enemies at the in the midst of chapter 18, He has been instructing, or at the close of 17, He has been instructing His disciples. And He closes out that instructions with that great high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. It is these words that John have reference to when he says in the opening verses, when Jesus had spoken these words. That private communion, that private instruction that Jesus had given His disciples. You know, there's things that we know as Christians that the world does not know. We know them because He has taught us. Because the Spirit of God has instructed us. We have a sense and awareness of the Word of God that they do not have. They can open up the Bible, they can read the ink on the pages, they can understand facts and history. But they don't know the depths of the spiritual message of the Word of God. Jesus had spent time with the disciples opening up the Word of God. And when He had finished that aspect of His ministry, the Bible says He went forth with His disciples over the book Kedron. John is the only one of the four Gospels that mentions this event. That becomes a critical point in a few minutes. Of the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mention many, many things that John does not mention. But John mentions something that they don't mention. What are we to learn then from the mention of the brook Kidron and the garden? It is a general summary, and I'm going to break it down further in a few minutes. We will search in vain in John's Gospel for any of the events relating to the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at this time in His ministry. Those three records agree among themselves. John's Gospel is different. He looks at things differently. His whole Gospel opened up with the Eternal Son of God in glory. Theirs opened up with the birth or calling to the gospel ministry. His whole view of who Jesus is is different. And this account becomes critical because of that, or with that in mind. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are true and accurate accounts of the events that took place in the life of Jesus and in the Garden of Gethsemane. But so is John's. They are not in conflict one with another as some try to do in their commentaries. Instead, they are complementary of each other. Matthew, Mark, and Luke view things from this perspective. John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, views things this way. Not so that they can be in conflict with each other, but so that we could take hold on this and this and put them together for a complete understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and John, or Luke, reveal much of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ during this time. 
They will speak of His agony, of His suffering. They speak of His tears. They speak of an angel coming and supporting Him. They speak of Him sweating great drops of blood. They speak of Him falling to the ground and praying to His Father that if this cup might pass, but nevertheless, not but my will, but Thine be done. They speak of those things. They speak of the humanity of Christ facing the reality of death. None of that is found in John's Gospel. None of it is found in John's Gospel. John reveals His deity. As he opens up his Gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, in the closing chapters, he has not lost sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. His Gospel opens in eternity with God. Chapter 18 is a revelation of God in the garden. We'll see it as it opens up in the next few weeks. In crossing the brook Kidron and entering into the garden, John remains absolutely consistent with his purpose in writing the Gospel. He focuses upon the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that I want us to grasp. Because when Judas comes in with that army, Jesus stands before them saying, who are you looking for? And they use His birth name. His, the name of the man, Jesus, born in Nazareth. And He says, I am. And they fall down. There is no hint of humanity in that. This is deity standing before these people. We'll come to that in the, in the weeks before us. The second point I want us to grasp is this. Those that only see history and geography in this text, in fact, in, in any other text, will miss much of what the Holy Spirit is teaching us here. Always remember when you read and when you study the Word of God that the Word of God is primarily spiritual. That it has behind the words a spiritual intent. My words are spirit, he said in John 6. They said, how can we eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink His blood? They were thinking physical. And he said, my words are spirit. They're spiritual. There's no different here. The Word of God focuses on the Son of God. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me, He says. And so behind the words, behind the physical sacrifices, behind the physical temple, and behind the physical priesthood is teaching of a spiritual teaching of the Son of God. The same is here. Let me give you an example. First, no doubt that there is history and geography to be learned in the Word of God. But more importantly, there is spiritual truth to be found in that history and geography. If I were to say, at Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ died. I have just given you a historical account and a geographical location. Calvary is that geographical location. But mention that location to a child of God and his mind does not go to geography. That hill outside of Jerusalem, his mind does not go to a, a hill that looks like a skull, Golgotha. His mind goes to that event that takes place, that, that place where his sin was paid for, where God was satisfied in a sacrifice. His mind doesn't deal with geography. It deals with the spiritual implication of Calvary. Mention the death of Jesus Christ. The historical account. We just had uh, the world, literally the world, celebrate Easter. 
a historical account. The world was celebrating Christmas. In, in India, Hindus and Muslims celebrate Christmas. They don't do it because they believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They do it because, you know, it's gift-giving time. But they recognize Jesus was born. It is a historical account. Jesus rose from the grave. It is a historical account. But mention His death at Calvary and the mind of a child of God does not go to history but to the spiritual implications that Christ has died for me, has died to save me from my sin. There's something about geography and history that has a spiritual lesson for us. And so, this account here of Him crossing over Kidron. There are several things that take place. I've often told you the Bible is its own interpreter. It gives you the interpretation. I've told you also the Bible, the words of God form their own lexicon. They give us a definition. They give us a dictionary. We can just search the Scriptures long enough. You're going to know what the Word of God says. So, when you come to study this in John chapter 7, 18 and verse 1, you open up the commentaries and, and what you're going to find is that many of the commentaries focus upon geography. And they strain over Greek words trying to explain its name, this brook. And they never come to the spiritual truth bound up in the account that takes place here. In fact, they don't even agree on how it got its name or what it actually means. I don't recommend you go search, but if you have an interest in being confused, you want to go search the commentaries on this, do so. Instead, I would charge us to take the Word of God and compare Scripture with Scripture. So, what does Kidron mean? This is the English spelling of a Greek word coming from a Hebrew word that's spelled with a K, K-I-D-R-O-N. The Kidron in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, means dark waters. That's what that means. It is taken from a Hebrew root word found in Job 6.16, those of you that are taking notes, that is translated blackish, which are blackish by reason of ice, is mentioned in Job 6, chapter 6, verse 16. That's the root word for the word Kidron in Hebrew. Blackish turns into dark waters. Kidron, with the C being a hard K sound, K sound, in Greek means a dusky place, if you look it up in the Strong's Concordance. Therefore, a, a dark place, or a place that's becoming dark, dusk. Dusk is when dark is coming. A dusky place. And so it agrees then with the Hebrew word, which means a dark place. This creek was named as a dark place, some think because of, uh, of the dark color of the water running through it. I agree with that, but you may have find commentaries differing on that. When you study the Word of God, the first mention of something becomes a sort of foundational. God oftentimes, when He mentions something first, carries the idea of that first mention through the rest of the Scriptures. For instance, the first mention of mercy in the Scripture. You know where it's at? It's back here in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis 19. And Lot, and his family are in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the angel sent by God to go fetch them. And Abraham is praying before God while the angels are fetching Lot. And the Bible says Lot tarried. And the angels laid hold on him, quote, the Lord having mercy upon him and drug him out of the city. Sinner, if you're lingering, trying to wonder if there's something left in this world that might be worthy of 
the coming judgment is there. God is warning you. And that, pray that God would lay hold on you in mercy and drag you out of this mess. It's going to perish one of these days. But what is the first mention of Kidron? Well, the first mention of Kidron is found in 2 Samuel 15, 23. 2 Samuel 15 in verse 23. And the Bible records in 2 Samuel 15, 23, and all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. First mention. This is David, the king. King David coming out of Jerusalem, crossing over the brook Kidron to the east of Jerusalem. This is east. To the east of Jerusalem, heading into the wilderness. But what is going on here? that has facilitated this situation, that has brought about this situation. First, let me mention to you a very important thing. David is a picture and type in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Physically, the Lord Jesus Christ came from the lineage of David, but he, David, as he sits on Israel's throne, as, is a picture of Jesus Christ enthroned over His people. And so we have this picture for us. What's going on? Well, Absalom, David's son, has rejected his father David as king. He has turned the heart of a multitude of people against David. He has led the people to rebel against David, bringing them to the place where David is in Jerusalem. He's there to overthrow David, to defeat him. When David left Jerusalem with his followers, he passes over the brook Kidron. After coming or crossing Kidron, David ascended to the Mount of Olives. First Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter fifteen, verse thirty. And David went up by the ascent of Mount of the Mount Olivet and wept as he went up. And his head covered, had his head covered. He went barefoot. All, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head. And they went up weeping as they went up. So he comes out of Jerusalem and he crosses the brook Kidron and he is moving toward Mount of Olive and he is under the burden of having been betrayed by the one he has loved. In Luke chapter 24, not recorded in John's Gospel at all, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, we find the Lord doing the same thing. John tells us He crosses the brook Kidron and went to the garden. Luke adds, and He came out, speaking of Jerusalem, and went, and as he was wont to the, the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. This is the account of Jesus. Luke does not record the crossing of the crook. John does that. Luke says, not mentioning the brook, that he's heading to the Mount of Olives. You see the Old Testament picture. David, the picture and type of Christ, betrayed, gathered, the betrayer gathering up people to come against him. David leaving with his followers from Jerusalem, crossing the brook, heading to the Mount of Olives. You see it. This is history we're talking about in 2 Samuel. And some would say it's just history. But those of us that sit here this morning that have some spiritual sense about us, that has a new heart about us, those of us that have eyes that can see something, 
can look at this Old Testament account and look at our Lord leaving Jerusalem and crossing the brook Kidron and can say, oh, there is spiritual truth here that we need to lay hold on. This is not just about history. It is not just about geography. There is a truth here that we need to grasp. So the first spiritual truth found in the mention of Kidron in the New Testament is this. When our Lord crossed Kidron, He was crossing over a dark place because He was about to face a shameful betrayal by one who had been close to Him. And with that betrayal, He would face rejection as God. Rejection as Savior. He would face rejection by both Jew and Gentiles. And so He leaves Jerusalem and crosses the brook Kidron. The second point I want to bring out about Kidron is this. This takes place under the ministry of King Asa in the Old Testament. And you'll find it in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 13. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 13. The Scripture says, and Meacah, his mother, even her, he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. There are several references in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, of idols being destroyed and stamped out into powder at the brook Kidron. The brook Kidron, brook Kidron then becomes a place in history marked by the destruction of idolatry. We want to take it simply as a place of geography and a historical event, you can, but I believe there is much more here for us to grasp. When our Lord crossed the book, Kidron, He was about to fulfill all that which was necessary to bring sinners out of the darkness and ignorance of their idolatry, to bring sinners out of the darkness and ignorance of their man-made religion into a relationship with the living God. Jew and Gentile had made their own religion. Jew and Gentile were idol worshipers. Jew, monotheistic, worshiping a God that did not exist. He stood before them and they did not know who He was there. and did not know He was their God. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. He said to them, search the Scriptures. You think you have eternal life, but you don't. Those same Scriptures that you have made this religion as, they speak of Me. To the Gentiles, He would say the same. And the Word of God declares God this way. You have made Him that way. And you need to come from that into a relationship with the living God. The purpose of eternal life. One of the purposes of eternal life is that sinners might come to know the true God. We've seen that already in John 17. John 17 verse 3. Just go up the next chapter. Look in John 17 3 again. We've looked at it so often in this prayer of His. John 17.3 says, And this is life eternal. Jesus Christ speaking. This is what it is. If you don't want to know what eternal life is, this is it. What is it? This is life eternal. What? That they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. This is what it is. To know the true God and to know the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reveal the true God. And He came to bring sinners as a mediator to the true God. He says the same thing John does in his epistle, 1 John 5.20, where he says that we know that the Son of God has come 
and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we believe Him to be the true God. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we believe Him to bring us to the true God. We believe on Him because He's the true Savior. Because He's the the, uh, way, the truth, and the life. We believe on Him because of those things. And when we believe on Him and when He grants unto us eternal life, we begin the process of knowing the true and living God. So the first purpose, or one of the first purposes of eternal life, is that we might come to know God. Secondly, the gospel call to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior is a call to forsake false gods and man-made religions. We cannot embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life and remain in the error of man-made religion. Something inside of us changes when we are saved. And we begin this process of migrating out of darkness toward light. Coming out, as my wife and I did, out of Catholicism into the truth of the salvation of God. Coming out of Judaism into the truth of the salvation of God. Coming out of Hinduism or Islam or coming out of Buddhism, whatever. Coming out because you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is a call to forsake false gods. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 22, said these words, Look unto me, as God speaking through His prophet, Look unto me and be ye saved. What does God say? Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the world, earth. Why? Because I am God, and there is none else. Did you catch that? You look to me, why should we look to you? Because I am God. And there is none else. You want salvation. You have to look through it for it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is no other Savior. You want to know God. You have to look for it in Him in Jesus Christ. Because there is no other God. Isaiah 45.22 God calls generally to the whole world. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the world, earth. For I am God. And there is none else. When Paul came into Thessalonica preaching, and later would write his epistle to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul defines what took place as he preached the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. He says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned from your idols to God. Because He was the living God and the true God. Which means your idols were dead, false gods. You turn from that to the true and living God. When I preached the Gospel in Thessalonica, that's what God did to bring you to Himself. Those that would approach God with an idol in their hand or a false religion in their hand, oh, I want Jesus, I want Jesus, holding behind their back something that they want to hold on to of their false religion will never come to know God. It is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And so, the purpose of preaching that men ought to repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ has in it the idea that in repentance men leave their idols and their man-made religion and embrace the one true and the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third mention of the brook Kidron in the Old Testament that I want to bring out to you this morning is this. It's found in Second Chronicles 
chapter 29, verse 16. 2 Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 16. This has reference to King Hezekiah and his earthly ministry as king over Israel. In 2 Chronicles 29.16, the Scripture says, And the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it, that is, all that unclean stuff, and carried it out abroad into the brook Kidron. Wow! So much instruction here for us about what is going on in Kidron. The brook Kidron then, in the third place, is associated with the removal of all that which is unclean in the worship of the true God in the house of God. The removal of all that which is unclean in the worship of the true God in the house of God. The priests are in the house of the Lord and they are cleaning out all that which is unclean and they take it out into the court. And the Levites gather it up and they take it and they're going east of Jerusalem to the area around the brook Kidron and there they dump all that unclean stuff. And we are to think about that as Jesus crosses Kidron that evening going to the Mount of Olives. What do we see in that? Well, the first thing that we see is at the close of our Lord's ministry, He had been preaching to the Jews about their religion and He had been preaching to them about their need to repent and He had been preaching to them about their need to come to embrace the one true and living God. And they had rejected that. And so the first thought that I would bring up in the ministry of Christ here is this. The Jews' religion had turned the house of God into something completely contrary to God and to His Word. This is borne out in the Scriptures through the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go with me to Matthew 21 first. Matthew 21, verse 12 and 13. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, Jesus is entering to a time that is close to the end of His earthly ministry. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and He cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Verse 13, And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. You have made the house of God a den of thieves. You have taken that which is holy and should have been holy and righteous and pure and you've turned it into thievery and lying and stealing. And He had put together a whip, the Scripture says, and He drove them out like you drive out cattle from, the, from, from a, 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 a fenced area. You just drove them out. They had perverted, they had made the house of God unclean. And they had deceived the people by doing so. Two chapters later, Matthew 23. Two chapters later in Matthew 23. We'll pick up in verse... Matthew 23. We'll pick up, I think, in verse 25. Let me get there. Yes, verse 25. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders over the Jews' religion. He says in verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup 
and of the platter, but within. It's full of extortion and excess. Drop down to verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. He's speaking to them of their religion, of who, of what they represent, of themselves and what they represent. Verse 28, Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And then, Continues another whole list of things that he brings against them. And coming down to verse 38, he makes this statement. In verse 38, Matthew 23, 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. You've taken that which was the house of God, you had polluted it with lies and with thievery, you had taken that which was the house of God, you painted it up on the outside, but inside was such corruption that it could be uh, explained by death and rotting flesh and bones. And you have fixed it up, but inside I see to the heart of the matter. And in the finishing his statement, he no longer says God's house, but your house. Oh, my soul. What they had done is taken that which was God and turned it into something man-made and it was theirs. How much of religion around us today is exactly like that? Your house is desolate. Your house is corrupt. But what is the crossing of the book Kidron teach us about this situation. And the first thing is this, or the second thing after explaining the Jews' religion is this, that the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ is directly associated with the establishing of a new and different house of God, the local church. A new house. A house is supposed to be clean. A house that properly represents the living God and the true God. We read in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, these words written by the Apostle Paul. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The house of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's New Testament apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom, verse 21 says, all the building, this, this house, this whole building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple. This local church, this building, this house, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom, in the Lord, ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. This church he's talking about here in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 23, this local church is a place where God dwells. It's a place where God said He would be with them until the end of time. The Old Testament temple, or even the New Testament temple had the Holy of Holies and God dwelt there. And Ezekiel shows God lifting up out of the holy and coming to, to the holy place at the front there and then lifting up and coming to the gate of the court and then lifting up and ascending to the Mount of Olives. Leaving them to their religion. Christ died. And on that day, that moment, the temple veil was rent. And for the next, that was 33 or so A.D., and in 70 A.D., that temple was destroyed for the next 40 years or so, 37 to 40 years. They continued their religion without God. Right. 
We can't have a church without God. We can't. He, it must be the desire of our heart and the prayers of our heart. God, be with us. Testify that You are with us. That we are Yours and You are ours. That we can say that we've been built together for a habitation of God by the Spirit, through the Spirit. The same one that have wrote Ephesians 2, 19-23, wrote 1 Timothy 3.15. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. He calls the house of God the church of God. The place where God dwells is His church. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended. And they, He descended upon that local church in Jerusalem. As an outward testimony, there's a lot of things that took place that day, but one thing that God did that took place that day was, if you want to meet with me, you meet with me in this place. I'm no longer going to meet with you in that temple. That temple is scheduled for destruction in 70 A.D. God credentialized His church at Jerusalem and says, if you're going to meet with me, this is where you meet. And how that truth has been perverted and how that truth has been forgotten in our generation and how critical it is in our generation that that truth be restored. If persecution is coming, if times of trial are coming, God will meet with His people in His church. God will meet with us in His people as they gather. Everything God does, He does on purpose and for a purpose. When our Lord crossed the brook Kidron, it wasn't just to get from point A to point B, something is going on. Something is being spoken to. Something is being revealed. Everything He does, He does on purpose. There are no accidents, no incidentals with God. He was setting in motion a multitude of things that would result in the establishing of His own kingdom and that would result in the salvation of His own people and would ultimately result in the establishing of a new heaven and a new earth. He set in motion everything necessary to make everything new. But it leads to Calvary. Culminates there in his death, burial, and in his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And it has continued from that day to this. His death, his burial, his resurrection resulted in making all things new. We haven't got there yet. But the promise of God is it's coming. Our part in God establishing a church is that we be engaged in taking the Word of God to people around us. And God, using His Word, saves them, adding them to His church to help them in the days that they will be facing. May God give us what we need to be faithful to Him. Let's pray.